the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back. Wednesday, February 23rd, 2022. <clears throat> I um, was talking yesterday about democracy's uh, obligation when it comes to foreign policy, and I uh, was citing an old uh, Jim Kirkpatrick essay, and someone asked if I would go through it, and um, as, uh, as Kismet would have it, uh, our friend and recent guest Dave Riaboy had recently posted Jean Kirkpatrick's essay on this. For those of you that don't remember Jean Kirkpatrick, she was um, she was Ronald Reagan's ambassador to the United Nations, among many other great achievements. A well-known professor at Georgetown University prior to that, and a longtime uh, writer contributor to conservative journals, who's probably best known outside of academia for giving the uh, most memorable speech at the 1984 Republican convention. But she writes this right after the collapse of the uh, Berlin, the fall of the Berlin Wall. A good society is defined, and I think it's especially relevant to frame our thinking, not only really overdue since Trump's presidency and the novelty that a lot of people applied to analyzing his foreign policy views, but also the situation we're in right now or may not be in, the situation of Europe and thus also the situation of China. She wrote that a good society is defined not by its foreign policy but its internal qualities, by the existence of democracy, opportunity, fairness obviously, by the relations among its citizens, the kind of character nurtured and the quality of life lived. That alone is worthy of analysis and we'll come back to it. She continues, foreign policy becomes a major aspect of a society only if its government is expansionist, imperial, aggressive, or when it is threatened by aggression. One of the most important consequences of the half century of war and Cold War has been, in the last century, has been to give foreign affairs an unnatural importance. The end of the Cold War Freeze time, attention, and resources for American needs, she wrote as the Berlin Wall was collapsing. America's chief collective purpose should be to make good society better, more productive, more cohesive, more caring, more safe, more challenging, and more serious. That attaches to the first point I wanted to identify and circle back to. Our purposes in the world, she writes, are thus merely human and not transcendental, unlike complex countries with complex histories and a clear national composition. The United States is the quintessential 18th century contractarian society. We are a people who have constituted ourselves by political will, who define themselves in terms of their purposes and organized a government around those purposes. In other words, not by blood and not by geography. The U.S. Constitution is the act of incorporation whose preamble defines and limits our collective purposes. Only one of the purposes stated there, and only one, 
unambiguously applies to foreign affairs. And when it does, it's about us to provide for the common defense of this country, not others. There is no mystical American mission or purpose to be found independently of the U.S. government and constitution. There is no inherent or historical imperative for the U.S. government to seek to achieve any other goal, however great, except as it is mandated by the Constitution and adopted by the people through elected officials. To be legitimate, the American government's purpose must be ratified by the population, except in the case of urgent, unanticipated events, obviously of great importance. The U.S. government cannot legitimately devote taxpayer monies to any cause not authorized by democratically elected officials, not to the establishment of democracy around the world, nor the elimination of war, hunger, chaos, nor the establishment of a stable world order, nor an orderly global trading system, nor any other worthy good except as these issues are discussed and endorsed by majorities of voters and adopted by their elected representatives. It can be expected that policies so adopted will reflect U.S. national character and basic values. It is frequently argued that foreign policy is so different from domestic policy that majority rule should not apply. It is certainly true that foreign policy has distinctive characteristics. Its objects are more remote and exotic than the objects of domestic politics because most people know less about foreign than domestic affairs. The issues can more readily be distorted and manipulated. As Tocqueville noted, the common sense and everyday experience of ordinary people is less readily relevant. It is also true that the foreign policy decisions may be uniquely catastrophic. Major mistakes in economic policy may cost people their jobs and income, but major mistakes in foreign policy cost people their freedom and their life. Under the conditions of global interdependence and proliferating weapons of mass destruction, U.S. foreign policy has become progressively complicated, expensive, and dangerous. More nations, more civilizations, more horrors have been involved since the fall of the Soviet Union. American civilians, like the passengers on the Achille Loro, she wrote, we could certainly talk about 9-11 or any act of terrorism, have been sucked into foreign affairs in new ways as the U.S. became involved with countries and people who consider us all combatants in an ongoing war for the liberation of somewhere. I'd like to come back to that point, too. It has become more important than ever that the experts who conduct foreign policy on our behalf be subject to the direction and control of the subjects, the people who put them there. We should reject utterly any claim that foreign policy is the special province of special people beyond the control of those who must pay its costs and bear its consequences. The special people never do. Like many other aspects of social policy, foreign affairs requires expert knowledge to be sure, but that's no reason to exempt it from democratic controls in other areas that also require certain special knowledge. Only elected officials continuously reminded of their immediate dependence on the people can ensure that government does not impose inappropriate, excessive, or unbearable demands on the polity. Elected officials must therefore accept responsibility for foreign policy, and we the people should hold them responsible for its conduct. This means that 
discussion of the broad issues of foreign policy should have an important place in any election campaign. Such discussion is not the rowdy intrusion often charged. It is an essential element of democratic government in interdependent worlds. Maintaining popular control of foreign policy is especially important because foreign policy elites do often have differing views than those of the popular majorities. Since World War II and even the Cold War, the United States developed a foreign policy elite based in the bureaucracy, academic institutions, and heavily associated with nonprofits that have come to govern our foreign affairs. Members of this elite grew accustomed to thinking of the United States as having boundless resources and purposes which transcended the preferences of voters and apparent American interests. Expansive, expensive global purposes, and eventually developed a disinterested global attitude which became identified with the liberal position on foreign policy. As for isolationism, most Americans know it's not a viable alternative in the contemporary world, but the isolationism versus internationalism debate is in reality the debate among the various types of internationalism that which aimed frankly to serve the national interest as conveniently conceived, that which aims to preserve and defend democracy, and a brand of disinterested globalism which looks at the world and asks what needs to be done with little explicit concern for the national interest. Today, as the former Soviet Union is losing its political dynamism and democracy is growing in strength in certain places, the United States should be free to focus again on its own national interests without endangering the civilization of which it is a part. That is a normal condition of nations. It is not incompatible with playing a constructive role. All right. She can go on, but I don't need her to, and I don't want to. I think what is most important is that last point. Did we focus as a nation in normal times on normalcy, the existence of democracy, opportunity, fairness, relations amongst our citizens, the kind of character we wanted to nurture and the kind of quality of life we want to live? Did we? Have we? It's interesting why the answer may be no, and I'll share some of that with you when we come back. I'm Seth Liebson coming to you live from the Guns Etc. Studios, 602-508-0960. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, coming to you live from the Guns Etc. Studios, 602-508-0960. Once the Soviet Union fell apart, you know, the Berlin Wall came down, there was a lot of talk about now America can enjoy its peace dividend. There was a lot of talk in concerning conservative circles about the conservative movement fracturing and fracturing because it no longer had one single common enemy. The big book at the time, the book that was getting celebrated almost everywhere in the elite foreign policy circles, the colleges, universities, the academies, the uh, learned societies and think tanks, was a book by Francis Fukuyama, who I believe was at Rand at the time. Uh, called uh, uh, what was it called the end of uh, the end of history, and it was uh, based on a Hegelian 
thesis. It was an overrated book by any number of stretches by for any number of reasons, I thought. Um, one of the interesting things it got dramatically wrong, it, it got several things wrong. One of the interesting things it got dramatically wrong, and I remember having these conversations in grad school when it came out, was it took no account whatsoever. It had one sentence. The entire book had one sentence on what was then known as fundamentalist Islam. Uh, the phrases like radical Islam or, you know, uh, uh, Islamofascism and all that, that, that came much later. That came post-9-11. Post but fundamentalist Islam uh, was not unknown uh, to many people who gave a damn about that stuff or even knew something of the Middle East and including uh, places like Afghanistan. It just, it just got no treatment. It was not seen as a problem or an issue. To Francis Fukuyama. So you already knew you were in the presence of someone who had, though, been considered an expert, limited, limited abilities. Uh, but anyway, my larger point, there was great debate in conservative circles about how the movement itself should be and would further be organized um, in fear of fracture. Because for many years, the libertarians, along with um, all the other strands of conservatism, paleocons, uh, values voters, uh, neocons, if you want, uh, wh whatever you wanted, the real politique folks, they all cohered around a common enemy. And they all agreed on who that common enemy was. It should say something interesting and instructive about a movement that is defined, however, by its enemy, if it only has one. Because what do you do once you succeed? You have two choices. You can either fold up and go home and uh, say, pat yourselves on the back and say, job well done. Or you can find new enemies. Uh, we did the second as a country and as a movement. We did the second. Um, and, and there were plenty of enemies to take on. There were plenty of dragons to slay. Uh, increasingly large government, uh, our deficits, uh, a lot of – if you were a values voter, a lot of the social issues. Um, if, if you were a foreign policy type, certainly uh, free trade issues were coming to the fore. Do you remember the great debates over NAFTA? which prompted, really was the cause for and prompting of, of Ross Perot running for president in uh, 1992. And thus, according to a lot of an anal analysts, not all, but a lot, uh, ruining the reelection for George H.W. Bush. I, 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 I've looked at those numbers, and I think you could debate it either way, whether Ross Perot was that spoiler or not, George H.W. Bush's numbers had gone from the 90 percent range shortly after the Gulf War to uh, cratering ranges, smaller and smaller ranges, thus making um, Bill Clinton uh, an increasingly attractive candidate for many people, even many conservatives. I remember there were a lot of quote-unquote conservatives for Clinton or Republicans for Clinton because George H.W. Bush, as many were saying at the time, may be forgotten, but many were at the time saying George H.W. Bush is a good reason 
not to be a conservative. You looked at some of his policies toward the Middle East, some of the coziness with Saudi Arabia, some of the antipathy towards uh, democracy in the Middle East, some of the interest um, in closer relationships with China, even after Tiananmen Square, not saying or doing enough about that. Um, there, there were a lot of concerns about George H.W. Bush and the conservative movement. And by the way, Bill Clinton was talking like conservatives used to talk when it came to some of those issues. He was much tougher on China than Bush. He was much stronger on the Middle East and taking on, uh, at least verbally or rhetorically, taking on uh, you know, the, tyrannies, the tyrannies of those oligarchies over there. And speaking a great deal to the problem of international terrorism, which also seemed to be a bit of a blind spot for George H.W. Bush, uh, who came out of really the Kissinger realm of foreign policy, which was really uh, the majority realm of, in conservative thinking when it came to the academies and the journals, but the minority view when it came to governing. Ronald Reagan uh, was not embracing the real politique of Henry Kissinger during his eight years of presidency. And you may recall, uh, was opposing that kind of foreign policy when he ran against Gerald Ford in 1976, who was Secretary of State for Gerald Ford in 1976, Henry Kissinger. So Ronald Reagan was was looking at foreign policy quite differently than George H.W. Bush did. Uh, and that, yes, was after the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, after which, after which the question became, okay, can we now focus on domestic policy and what will be conservatism's focus on domestic policy? As Jean Kirkpatrick writes, good society, making a good society better, more productive, more cohesive, more caring, more safe, more challenging, more serious. How did we do? I would argue we fell apart on almost every front. And it wasn't just we conservatives. I would say Americans fell apart on almost every front. There's any number of indices I could point to uh, from the way we entertain ourselves and our culture. That's when those debates started cropping up. That's when uh, people started talking about those kinds of things. Never solved them. They only got worse. I can give you the Super Bowl uh, halftime show as an example of that. If you think that that went away, it didn't. It came back and people praised it, weirdly. Um, I, I, I can give you any other of any number of other examples as well. Uh, family, uh, family orientation, education. Why is our educate? Why have our education statistics gone so much further down and lower since the end of the Cold War? That should have been something that had nothing to do with our foreign policy. I'll tell you what I think it has to do with. I don't think we view ourselves as a normal country, and I don't think we've been acting as a serious one. That was our error after the fall of the Berlin Wall. All right, we'll, we'll go more into this when I come back, and hopefully it sheds some light on where we are vis-a-vis Russia. We will be, and Ukraine, we will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. 34 past the hour brings us our culture and economy update with the fabulous John Dombrowski. He of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. GrandCanyonPlanning.com is his website. He has his own radio show right here every Saturday morning at 7 a.m. on 960. 
the word on wealth. John, how are you this fine Wednesday? Great, Seth. How you doing? I'm doing just fine. Thank you, sir. One of the things that uh, came across my transom today that's kind of interesting is a story on um, on on 401ks and IRAs, okay. new statistics right. on them. Talk to me about this. What are we learning that's new? What are the 10 new stats on 401ks and IRAs that we should be aware of? Well, one of the interesting things I found with this study, which was done through Fidelity, and it talks about the trends that they're seeing in 401ks. And there's been a couple of real positive things that we've seen over the past couple of years. Uh, you know, we look at the markets today, of course, another horrible day for the markets, but we're looking at uh, what what generally investors are doing across the country. And we see more and more people participating in uh preparing for their own retirement through what are called defined contribution plans, as you mentioned, the 401ks or the IRAs. And we're seeing that even with the uh, pandemic that occurred, with what, what's been known as the great resignation uh, as a cause uh, you know, of, or an effect of this, is, is that we're seeing IRA balances and 401k balances substantially higher year over year which is really positive for people who are providing, you know, for their own income in retirement. We realize that, you know, if we're looking for the government to take care of us in retirement, we're probably going to be in for a pretty big surprise uh, and not on the good side of things. So we need to be proactive and take care of this ourselves. And we're seeing this. The average 401k balance reached a record high of $130,700. And that's up 8% from the previous year, Seth, which is a great um, you know, benefit to see that people are doing this. IRAs grew over 13% from the year earlier. And we're also seeing an increase in the number of participants in 401ks uh, through employers that offer these types of plans to their employees. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the averages of uh, IRA balances and 401k balances, both in the $130,000, $140,000 range. And that is not a number I would have guessed. If you were to have asked me what the average was, I would have guessed much higher. I'm right. going to guess what your response is to my question. So correct me or edit it any way you want, amend it any way you want. But I would, have, I would guess that you would say, if I thought that was low, you would say it really depends on a lot of factors, most importantly age. That is the biggest factor, okay. of course. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because if you've got the uh, little, you know, the Gen Z workers now increasing their contributions, yeah. finding, yeah, and they're participating much more in these types of plans. But maybe lowering the, the total average number a little, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Exactly right. Oh. Uh, and one of the other uh, things to consider, which I think is helping the employees moving forward here, is is that oftentimes. There's what's called an automatic enrollment in a 401k plan. So if you're hired on as a new employee, you're automatically enrolled in their 401k plan. Now, what that does immediately, in many cases, employers are actually making contributions to the 401k, whether or not you make it, you know, your contribution. It doesn't matter. But if your employer is making matching contributions to your contributions and you're not making any contributions, then they're not making any matching contributions, which means you're missing out on that. Right. So if you are not doing that, please 
take advantage of that. That's free money to you uh, from your employer. And what it is is it's trying to get you to do that forced savings uh, into a 401k plan. And many of these employers are contributing or matching up to as much as 5% or higher. So it can be a big number for people out there. One of the interesting things, if I read this right, um, is that most people who leave their jobs, and by most most by an awful lot, like well over 80 or 85% of memory serves, aren't cashing out, right? Right. And that's a nice benefit too, Seth. You know, in the past, people would leave their job. They might just close their 401k, take the money and pay all the taxes on it. Yeah. People have wised up to the tax ramifications of such a, uh, a decision and now have that opportunity in front of them, which we do for clients all the time. We assist them in a rollover of that 401k to an IRA, which now we have more flexibility, more opportunity, and more uh, uh, availability of assets that we can invest in to help people reach their financial goals. Beautiful, John. Thank you, sir. You bet. To reach out to us at GrandCanyonPlanning.com to request an appointment, Securities and Advisory Services, offered through Client One Securities LLC, a member of Fenrin Sipic and an investment advisor. Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC and Client One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Thank you, Seth. John, thank you for everything. I'm Seth Liebson. Uh, you want to know about the War Powers Act and how it works? What's obliga- what, what our obligations are? Brett Johnson coming right up. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. As we do every Wednesday, we check in with our Robert Jackson Fellow in Constitutional Studies, Brett Johnson. Brett W. Johnson is a partner at the Snell & Wilmer Law Firm based here in Phoenix uh, with offices around the country. And for more than one reason do we call him the Robert Jackson uh, Fellow or Scholar. Uh, Robert Jackson was a constitutional scholar, but he also took leave from the Supreme Court to uh, prosecute uh, war crimes at Nuremberg. And just like Robert Jackson, uh, or in fact better than Robert Jackson because he actually went to law school, Brett Johnson is also highly certified in international affair, in international affairs and even has a master's uh, in law in it with a lot of postgraduate experience as well. So, Brett, with all those credentials, welcome back and thanks for joining us as always. Well, thank you. And, and any time being compared to Justice Jackson, uh, it's definitely an honor. Yeah, yeah. Run with the more educated. Run with the more, more, more <laughs> run with, which is true. I, he was the last Supreme Court justice not to go to law school. Oddly enough, one of my favorites. Yeah. And probably one of the best because he didn't go to law. Maybe, maybe so. Maybe so. Maybe so. So let me let me ask you to put on some of your uh, foreign policy experience. You do practice in that field as well, uh, I should point out. Um I was making just this point yesterday and a little bit earlier today, Brett, that we as we're engaging in this Russia-Ukraine situation, it's worth remembering something uh, Gene Kirkpatrick wrote many years ago, which is foreign policy, like domestic policy, should have the buy-in of majorities of, de- of a democratic voice in countries calling themselves democracies. People should have an input. It should not be the province of elites. That's one issue. And the second issue that's kind of interesting is we don't really declare wars anymore ever since the wars, War Powers Act, 72, 73, something like that, in, which, which provides these various 30, 60, 90-day latitudes. And then beyond that, we use authorizations of, of, of military force rather than declarations of war. So I'm wondering if you could just kind of straighten out for us a little bit how we got to some of this. Let's start maybe with the War Powers Act and then why we don't go to declarations of war anymore. 
Is that is that okay with you? Yeah. Thanks. No, no, that that works out perfectly. So, okay. as, as way background, background War Powers Resolution or War Powers Act, it's called different things. So, so they're interchangeable. Same, same exact statute, nineteen seventy three. As some of your listeners may remember, um, when we were just getting out of the Vietnam War, uh, was winding down during that period of time, and it came out as that the that the United States was bombing in other countries than just Vietnam, Cambodia, yep. Laos, things of that right. nature. And so Congress wanted to put some restrictions on that and then uh, pass the War Powers Resolution on actually a bipartisan um, level. And then Richard Nixon actually vetoed it, came back to the, to the um, Congress, and then they overrode it with two-thirds of the vote. So that um, – and every um, – and Richard Nixon at that time said that this is an unconstitutional act, and that was the reason why he vetoed it. Every president, even those who served in the, in the Congress before they became president, um, has also upheld, because it seems like when they switch over and become president, they put on that hat, they have also determined that it's unconstitutional, um, including President Obama, President Clinton, President Bush, have all had raised concerns about the War Powers Resolution. You did state it correctly, and basically what the resolution says, within 48 hours of, of a military action, Congress will be notified. Congress then, then the president has 60 days to take the different action. And then with the third extra 30 days to withdraw the forces, right. and if they don't do that, then there needs to be a declaration of war or, as you mentioned, a resolution authorizing that force. Right. That kind the way of we were taught it, just go- just for the audience, the way we were taught it in, I think, undergrad, if, if memory serves, is presidents can wage wars for something like 90 days with no buy-in. That's basically what it came that, to stand. Okay. Okay. That, that's exactly right. Okay. And especially, you know, with Congress having having the purse in right. charge of spending. Right. Uh, extensive wars going thereafter. Um, so, so from that, there's been a, a significant amount of forces. And, and the, the purpose of the resolution and where the debate goes back and forth of what our constitutional founders, and remember, in the Constitution, there was a standing Navy. That's right. The Constitution really envisioned a militia where the states would raise up the militia and that would be your standing army in, in the event of an invasion or, or, or war, right. and it would be total war, right. like World War II, total yep. war, the yep. entire economy towards that effort, mm-hmm. and no. which is different than the resolutions, which is more of like a targeted war. Iraq, Syria, Lebanon back in the 80s, um, you know, those were all targeted um, um, actions that were taken, and each president has tried to kind of balance that that step, and, and you obviously see it um, um, from the Iraq War, which yep. was a, there was eventually a resolution, right. as well as the Afghanistan War, where there was a resolution for right. that authority, which just kept on getting extended and extended. One of the things I remember being told, and I, I've never looked it up and I've never bothered to ask, so I'll do it now, which is it, it, I was told one of the reasons, and by no source I recall, so I have no reason to believe it to be true any more than I have it to, reason to believe it to be untrue. One of the reasons we don't declare war officially is that it upsets a lot of economic arrangements, perhaps insurance uh, deals, insurance uh, policies and and so forth, that authorizations of military force do not. Is that mostly myth? That there is some truth to that okay. about the economic impact okay. because of what's called force majeure. Ah, every, yes. Almost every contract has that force majeure. Yeah. It's acts of God and acts of the king, which is, is declaring war, which will then impact my ability to perform that contract. Right. Um, but, it, but it also goes a little bit further. 
in all of our laws, not just Title X, which governs the armed forces, in all of our laws, there are triggers when war occurs, certain actions will immediately occur by the different departments and agencies. Uh -huh. give you an example back in the day and still today. Coast Guard is underneath the Department of Homeland Security during peacetime. Yes. In wartime, yes. Coast Guard automatically yes. shifts to the Department of Defense. Uh -huh. So it's those types of triggers that they don't want to occur because of all of the costs associated. That's a perfect explanation, Brett. I thank you for it. By the way, this power of the purse has been used to stop uh, military uh, engagements. Um, the idea that it has never been used is, would be wrong. Uh, it's really a very sad story about 1973, 4, and 5, about how Congress did cut off funds uh, to, right. to a war that was very much turning, if not having turned our way. And snatched, uh, what's the phrase, uh, Brett? Snatched a, 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 a defeat from the jaws of victory or something. Defeat, exactly. Close, close defeat, like exactly. that. It's a very sad story, actually, what the Democrats did. I'll just leave that as my editorial comment for now. Do you want to tell me a little bit in our audience a little bit about why we're hearing so much about NATO? Or would you rather do that next week? Either way is fine. We have time either way. I Yep, I could do it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Here. Talk to us about when we engage with an organization like NATO what that obliges us to or obligates us so, to. So, right. So there's NATO, there's SATO, which right. is in, in uh, Southwest Asia right. with our, our Asian allies. But NATO is obviously with our European allies, the Canadians. Um, and, and as part of that, we have agreed via treaty, which was approved by Congress, to come to the collective aid. Now, that, that still would trigger the War's Powers Resolution, and it's Article 5, yep. Article 5 of the NATO Treaty. Yep. And it's very specific, though. It's not mandating certain action. It's basically you, the United States or any other country says, what can I aid, what can I provide to, to uh, resolve the conflict at issue? So it doesn't necessarily guarantee forces will be, um, be contributed, and in many cases, Germany being one that has laws on the book. Right. That, Say that they can't be used for a military um, um, outside foreign foreign military adventures coming back from World War II. Japan has a similar um, initiative, so it really becomes questionable as to what you can do. Now, of a note of history, only time Article Five has ever been triggered was 9/11. Perfect. So yeah, Perfect. so that's that's how that, and then that's how it kind of works into the war powers. Article uh, Section Five would be triggered. And then the Congress, uh, president would activate the military and still, in theory, if not determined unconstitutional, would have to go back to Congress for that approval. Brett W. Johnson, clarity and brains. I love it. That was very well done, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Brett Johnson uh, from the Snell uh, and Wilmer Law Firm, SWLaw.com, partner who uh, walks us through these things every Wednesday. Brett Johnson, bless you, sir. Thank you. Godspeed. We'll be right Thank back. You. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, parts of which are brought to you by Balance in Nature. The fruits and veggies of Balance of Nature are what I take every day. I just popped a few, especially on a day like today. You want to keep your immunity as high as possible. Why not do it with the only product I know of that is exclusively made of only fruits and vegetables? That's all. That's it. Nothing added, including sugar and fully tested for any kind of uh, outside negative things that you wouldn't want, any kind of pesticides or extracts, fillers, uh, metals, anything like that, fully tested. Fresh fruits and vegetables 
using their cold press process, unique cold press process over at Balance of Nature. Balanceofnature.com. I take it every day. I'd love it if you did too. Check them out and make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Balanceofnature.com, discount code BALANCE. Doug is in Maricopa. Hello, Doug. How are you, I'm doing fine, sir. How are you? I'm doing great. Another wonderful, delightful show. I want to thank you. Thank you. Um... You know, thinking about the Ukraine and Russia situation and um, the Biden's administration's approach to this, I'm sure you've heard, um, you know, we've all heard endless analysis, And but I wanted to give my two cents because I, I thought you'd have a layman's approach versus um, an elite approach. I would love that. I, I, would, at, I would absolutely love it. I'd like to consider myself <laughs> a layman, but I would absolutely. Let me do this. Let me check in. Let's do our our regular check in uh, with sure. uh, David Schweikert as we do. He has some things to say about uh, something interesting you may not know about that AOC is up to. And then uh, if I can ask you to hold or just call back in about 20 minutes, let's pick it up, Doug, because I think we could use a lot more lay understanding and a lot less expertise right now. The experts are who got us here. Notice notice how we won things without firing a shot when our presidency was held by non-experts. You notice that? Reagan, Trump, it's the experts that get us in trouble. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 